This is a download from Force Migration Online. To find out more, please go to www.forcemigration.org. and information network which was created in 2004 and has worked there as uh, defending rights project manager since 2009 and COIN works to inform public debate on issues relating to climate change and in particular Hannah has taken responsibility for coordinating a new initiative called the UK Climate Change and Migration Coalition and it's a coalition across civil society and NGOs in the UK working on issues relating to environmental migration and displacement. And UK CCMC is working particularly on trying to give a voice to issues relating to justice for victims and potential victims of those at risk of displacement as a result of environmental change. I first met Hannah at an event that she convened as part of the the launch of UK Climate Change and Migration Coalition events. And it, it took place in November. It was a speaker night hosted by Amnesty International in London. And at the event, the format was a little unusual. It was what was called a Pecha Kucha night, where all of the speakers, we were told after accepting the invitation, would be given exactly six minutes and 20 seconds in which to present exactly 20 PowerPoint slides. And each slide would remain on display for exactly 20 seconds and then drag you on very quickly. So I was very tempted to subject Hannah to that this evening, <laughs> but we're not going to do that. But the one thing I did when I, when I was trying to find out about Pecha Kucha was to look on YouTube and find examples. And I found that Hannah had presented in this format. And what I learned from looking at that and from that evening in November when I went to the speaker night is that in an area that lacks analytical and political leadership, that is emerging as one of the most articulate and indeed critical spokespeople on behalf of NGOs and civil societies on this issue. And I think it's in that context that it's a real pleasure to have somebody can, that can give that practitioner voice to a series that's otherwise dominated by academics. So thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you to, to Alex. I'm not entirely sure how I'm supposed to follow that introduction. Um, but it's a real pleasure to be here today at the centre um, and to be asked to take part in a series which aims to cast a critical eye on, on efforts to respond to displacement linked to environmental change. Um, I should also mention that although I work in London, COIN, the organisation I work for, is actually Oxford based and so it's quite nice to be doing something on home territory, if you like. Um, although COIN has been working somewhat behind the scenes on this issue for a few years, the, the coalition itself only launched last year. Um, and I'd say that the organisations who are involved are all united by concern about the lack of any long-term strategies to support, assist and protect people at risk of displacement linked to environmental change. And we've now got around nine members, um, and that includes the Migrant Rights Network, 
COIN, the British and Welsh Refugee Councils, Save the Children UK, the UK branch of Care International and the Environmental Justice Foundation. So it's very much about trying to build a platform for civil society dialogue on this issue, engagement, and to do so by bringing the refugee, human rights, humanitarian, development and environmental sectors together. You can imagine we have fairly interesting conversations. Um, and that was born very much out of a response, or certainly an understanding that COIN had when we first started this work, that we were concerned about some of the communication strategies which were being developed by environmental groups working on this issue. Our then executive director came from the refugee sector and had crossed to the climate change world particularly because of this concern. And he was very aware that although well-meaning, lots of environmental groups were moving into a territory that perhaps uh, they didn't know enough about. And so this was an effort to try and actually bring what had been disparate groups together to see if we could work collectively on pushing the agenda and moving the agenda forward. Um, now, as a coalition, our aim is to sort of build that engagement, but first and foremost is also about building support for and influencing the creation of, of policies that might promote the rights of those at risk of displacement. And I guess our central beliefs might be described as looking to limit the likelihood of forced movement. So we believe that we can and have a responsibility to limit the likelihood of forced migration occurring in this context. Now that's a very, a relatively new challenge in the sense that with other sort of areas of forced migration you don't necessarily have that opportunity, but we do with this issue. And also to recognise that some forced movement is inevitable. And, uh, you know, you get into slightly, I guess, waffly territory here, but it's my belief that we have a moral, moral responsibility to, to plan for that ahead of time. Um, now, the title for my presentation today was Seeing the Person in the Problem. And, again, that's born out of a personal reflection that all too often in our work, in forums like this, whether it's an academic environment or a policy environment, we very easily forget that we're actually talking about real lives and real people. This is a fascinating issue. I mean, Alex, you used the term voguish in your publicity for the series. It is a voguish issue. It's, it's an interesting issue. I'm lucky to work on such an interesting issue. But this, we're actually talking about real people and real lives. And so, I'd ask you really to bear that in mind as we work through some of, some of the issues I'm going to talk about today. Um, and in a sense, I'd say that we failed to find consensus on basic terminology to describe those affected, in part because what we're actually dealing with are highly differentiated displacement scenarios occurring in localised socio-political contexts to individual people. And I would argue that unless we can see that individual in all of these numbers and projections, that we're unlikely to be able to respond effectively or appropriately. And further to that, that the rights and welfare of this individual 
need to be placed at the centre of our long-term planning. And so, this may, I mean, I guess a theatrical term would be to suspend disbelief, but what I'm going to ask you to do now, and I realise there are limitations to this exercise, but what I would like you to do is just spend one minute thinking about one person who lives in an environmentally fragile area, anywhere in the world, it's, it's your choice. And I want you to think about the context of that individual's life. Who are they? Do they have family? What, what's their main source of income or livelihood? What's the political situation like in that country? And I just want you to reflect on the context of their, their life for, for a minute. And then I want you to think about that particular individual as I work through some of what I see as the biggest challenges and potential solutions. And as you think about that individual, I want you to start thinking, does, does that apply to this person's situation? In the hope that after I've presented, we might be able to have an interesting discussion on the back of, of your own reflections. So if you just spend a few moments. I'd like to talk to you about two specific policy challenges, both of which are actually highlighted in the recent UK government foresight report on global environmental change and migration. Now, the foresight report is important for a number of reasons, but for, for me as a kind of a policymaker or policy actor rather trying to influence policymakers, it's important because it evidences the fact that this is being taken seriously at a government level. And it opens an important door to further policy dialogue. I want to look at how we might give recognition to findings that migration might be capable of actually helping build resilience in climate-affected countries. And I want to also look a rather more established need to close protection gaps. Now, I should say on protection gaps that although you know for the Foresight Report does look at it, it certainly doesn't apply the same analytical rigour to looking at the protection dimensions of this issue as it does to looking at the what we call migration as adaptation arguments. Um, sort of buried in there. Um, or rather, I, I suppose you could conceive it as, as if we go back to, to the beginning, looking at how we might limit the likelihood of forced migration occurring, and then how we might provide protection for those who are displaced. Um, now, caveats, caveats, caveats. I proceed on the basis, on the assumption, that the causal relationship between environmental <coughs> change and migration is complex. Now, that is to say, in most cases, climate change is two or three steps removed from the actual threat which is facing people. So climate change might cause unreliable rainfall, which leads to uh, lower crop yields. It's the lower crop yields 
or the perhaps uh, resultant price hikes, which actually affect people's migration decisions. And of course, not in isolation, there are a range of other factors which combine at the local level to influence the options, decisions or outcomes for vulnerable groups. But whilst we have to heed that complexity and, and try to understand it, I'm not going to talk to it today. I actually believe that we know enough already to warrant a departure from the current preoccupation with better understanding the interplay between migration and environment. That is to say, all migration is multi-causal. It may be impossible to identify environmental factors in isolated cause, but there is ample evidence to warn us that climate change is loading the dice and substantially increasing the burden on already vulnerable communities. So if we move to this first challenge, how can we give recognition to findings that migration is capable of enhancing resilience? Now, for those of you who are new to these issues, I should say that there's been a real shift in the debate over the last year, year and a half, from being one which almost exclusively focused on looking at the problems associated with new migratory flows, whether they are voluntary or forced, to one which now tries to, or attempts to recognize the benefits that migration can offer. Um, frequently referred to as migration as adaptation, it's not about dismissing the very real dangers which people in at-risk areas face, but it does mean thinking about and talking about migration as part of the solution rather than as part of just the problem. Now, the basic idea is that migration might actually help people become more resilient to changing conditions. Now, tied to that, though, a slightly different notion, there has recently emerged this idea of, of trapped populations, which kind of suggests that and in a sense of equal concern to displacement concerns, that changing environmental conditions might actually make people less mobile. It might limit people's capacity to engage in migration strategies. Um, now, how, how do we actually operationalize this or, or make it uh, a reality? I would argue that we need to, to look at a range of options. In part, it's just about carefully considering the barriers which exist to movement on the ground internally, physical, socioeconomic, political. But it might also be about much more innovative strategies. So looking for people to have the strength and conviction to push for new migration management options through bilateral or regional agreements. On barriers to movement, we need to carefully look at what's standing in the way of people actually being able to utilize migration strategies. And I would argue that a useful first step would be for donor governments uh, and national governments alongside international and local NGOs to start integrating migration considerations into their existing development and adaptation work. Now, it sounds like a very basic ask. I very rarely go to a conference where people don't say, the issue just needs to be mainstreamed. But it does. Um, and it's astonishing, but these links really aren't being made yet. Um, if we accept that migration strategies 
or maybe something which, which people can usefully employ in response to deteriorating conditions, then we need to work towards establishing a genuine right to mobility in the face of environmental change. I would argue we also need to start looking at cross-border and international migration options for people from key affected areas. Again, this is also in the Foresight report. You might be surprised to hear. It's not a headline, but it is buried in there, and I think it's probably quite purposefully not a headline. Um, but the example might be that the migration of family members in regions who are experiencing considerable st stress could be facilitated in order to supplement family incomes. So remittances get reinvested in, in you know, or, or provide vital investments in food security. Uh, as I'm sure everyone here is aware, remittances from overseas workers currently outstrip official development assistance in most countries. Um, and we already have examples of where labour migration schemes might offer us useful insights on which to build such agreements. Um, and I think here in particular of New Zealand's Pacific Access category, although it wasn't designed to respond to this issue, and Spain and Colombia's TCLM project. TCLM is of particular interest because of its explicit focus on, on what's called co-development. So in TCLN, Colombians um, from particularly fragile environmental areas are offered the opportunity to uh, take up seasonal employment in Spain, in the agricultural sector. And while in Spain uh, it fills employment shortages and keeps the economy ticking over, that migrant is also offered training which can then be directly applied um, on, on their return and the money and, and training reinvested in re resilience building activities. Now, I would argue that Europe is in a particularly good position to incorporate these ideas already. So the EU ACP uh, model of collaboration is well developed as is model of cooperation with third countries. Similarly, the OSCE process, the Organization for Security and Cooperation, links Europe to countries in Central Asia. I think these are all the resources, and they're already there, which could be used to support innovations in migration management of this kind. Now, work towards establishing a genuine right to mobility in the face of deteriorating conditions might strengthen people's adaptive capacity, it might avoid forced displacement scenarios, but it might also help avoid the likelihood of vulnerable populations actually becoming trapped in fragile areas. Now, I think what it's very important to stress here is that realising the real potential of migration as adaptation is dependent on us strengthening and securing the rights of migrants and vulnerable po populations in this, in this context. Though the shift in the debate is, is definitely a welcome one, I think we have to be extremely cautious about how this is interpreted and operationalized. So the concern here is that it provides a very nice, tidy, seemingly legitimate excuse to governments to, to forcibly relocate populations from vulnerable areas. Um, it happened after the Boxing Day tsunami. It's happening now in Vietnam. 
So the process has to be underpinned by a common understanding that migration as adaptation is about realising and protecting the rights of people whose lives and livelihoods are threatened by environmental change. It has to be about making affected communities aware of their rights and supporting them to employ migration strategies where it's the right and best choice for them. So migration is one of the tools that we might use to help manage environmental change. But this new focus on migration as adaptation, again though I welcome it, does come with the risk that we then forget the displacement and forced migra migration dimensions of this issue. Um, the risk is we pull all our energies into realising adaptation concerns and sideline, knowingly or unknowingly, the debate about protection. Well, at base level, on protection, what I say is this. Where conditions become so dire that it's impossible to, to sustain a livelihood or even life, people should be assisted to move to areas where they can establish a sustainable livelihood. In some instances, it's my belief that this should include the right to seek sanctuary in another country. The threshold for invoking such a right could be that that person's life is in jeopardy, and so the right to life compromised. Here, Alex's work on survival migration is probably the most instructive body of work. Now, contrary to conflict-induced displacement, we have the opportunity to plan for this. Um, I mean, I'm not, it's obviously complex, but we've got a window of opportunity, if you like. Um, and I would argue that we have a moral responsibility to start doing that now. Respect for the basics of, of human dignity requires, of course, that we avoid moving people into settlements and camps, which they may never leave. And that is what will happen unless we prepare for this adequately. This has to be conceived less as about humanitarian relief and more as about just and long-term development planning. Now, academics' favourite jibe at NGOs or the NGO world, rather, is that we're all calling for a new international treaty to support this, or, or even worse, that we're looking to renegotiate the terms of the 1951 Convention, which protects refugees. I can state categorically, and rather happily, that we are not. <laughs> um, there probably once was a time where that was something people did look at, but uh, thankfully we've kind of moved quite far beyond that in the last few years. In terms of a new global treaty, I'd say opinion is, is slightly more divergent on, on that, but certainly it's my opinion that it would be both undesirable um, and unnecessary at this time. Rather, well, broadly speaking, it's felt that regional or sub-regional agreements might better respond or correspond to, to the rights and needs of those affected. Um, perhaps supported by global guiding framework akin to the 1998 um, principles on internal displacement. Uh, and we've actually already seen a little bit of progress on this. In June last year, uh, the Norwegian government and the UN Refugee Agency drafted the Nansen principles on climate change and displacement. Now, the document is intended as 
a guide to state action in the protection and assistance of people who are displaced by sudden onset disaster. Now, at present, it's just a document. Um, it doesn't have widespread endorsement, but it's a useful starting point on which to build a committed policy discussion about protection. In an EU context, principle nine is probably the most relevant in that it calls on states to work with UNHCR to develop a protection framework for people displaced externally because of sudden onset disasters. Now, the big caveat with Nansen is that it only applies to situations of sudden onset disaster. Now, it was very clearly a political move in the sense that it circumscribes, or rather gets round some of the difficulties we have looking at how to decide who might be entitled to protection in slow onset situations. Protection needs in the face of an earthquake or a flood are relatively more easy to define. But for those affected by a, more, well, a much slower degradation of the landscape, something like drought, the situation is far less clear cut. It's also less controversial. The Nansen principles are very purposefully couched in familiar terms or familiar humanitarian terms. The focus is very much on disaster preparedness and response. It's far easier to negotiate with a government on disaster preparedness and response than it is the issue of extending long-term protection to new groups of people. Um, but again, I'd say we have to proceed with caution here. If we continue to conceive concerns and to use language that reinforces the idea that this is first and foremost a humanitarian issue, then we remove the space we should be fighting for, for beginning long-term proactive planning before crises unfold. Now, all things considered, they're imperfect, but I actually would prefer to see us keeping the momentum which was created last June when this document appeared up. It's a useful tool for pushing it up and onto political agendas. I'm not going to pretend this doesn't mean that some extremely diff difficult conversations lie ahead, but I believe quite firmly that we need to be resolute enough to have those conversations. And so my headline on protection is this. Let's start with what we've got. There are plenty of other people out there saying the same, whether it's about looking to strengthen the implementation of the IDP guidelines or working with the NANS to flesh out the Nansen principles. They're here. Let's use these instead of looking to create new international architecture. Um, to close, I'm open to... Discussion. I think that will be the most important and interesting part of today. I wanted to yeah, summarise points which I hope you will take away. And I guess the first is that we can prepare for and avoid some of the most severe displacement scenarios. And that's a rare opportunity. That migration is part of the solution and that where migration helps people strengthen their survival capacity, we should be supporting and facilitating that. That we can allow the migration as adaptation agenda to distract from the genuine concerns about the protection of people who might be forcibly displaced. And that we have to avoid letting this issue be swallowed up solely by issues of humanitarian concern. And finally, that the strong inclusion of 
in consultation with affected groups and organisations that represent them in any intervention is vital. I mean, any, anything developed, any policy, any intervention which, which is developed that doesn't do that will ultimately fail. And so, if I may finish, I'd like to finish with an ask to those of you who are interested in this as a research topic. Um, it goes back to me saying, let's not talk about the interplay between climate change and environment. I agree that that is something which needs to be better understood. But I would also contend that there are plenty of scholars and institutions who are already invested in that process. And that as a practitioner, what I need is people, people who have the analytical brain power and rigor to actually start looking at some of the tools and, and, and instruments which we might be able to use to actually start planning now. I believe that we do know enough already to start that planning. And so we need to be able to shift this debate a little bit further down the road because it's not a future eventuality. It's, it is happening now. Um, and so it may be a fascinating area of research, but it is about real lives. And I think all of us need to work towards better and more sincere cooperation. To that end, I have a question for you before you can uh, attack me with your onslaught. But my question for you is how might researchers and advocacy groups work more effectively together? Thank you. If you've enjoyed this download, you might like to listen to other podcasts at Force Migration Online. www.forcemigration.org slash podcasts.